0: Amen. Well, if you will, turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 2. And if you don't have a Bible with you, there's one in the pew there in front of you. Uh, Today we're going to be looking at Hebrews chapter 2, verses 10 through 13. Uh, We've been walking through the book of Hebrews together, and in recent weeks we've seen how the the author of Hebrew, the writer here, has established uh, that God has revealed Himself to us. And in these last days He has revealed Himself to us through His final revelation... Uh, That's through His Son, Jesus Christ. And we've learned how He is supreme over all things. And so, the writer of Hebrews here has given a stern warning not to neglect the Gospel, not to neglect the teachings of Jesus, but to obey Him, to follow Him, because He is indeed supreme. Uh, He says He's the, the founder of our salvation. And in today's passage... He'll explain how it is that salvation has been founded, that it comes through the suffering of Jesus Christ. And so we're going to look uh, to this passage today, Hebrews chapter 2, verses 10-13. through 13. And if you're able to, if you would stand together, as I read God's Word for us, uh, we stand out of reverence for the Word. This is not the Word of man. This is the Word of God. And we often hear people say they wish God would just speak to them. Well, friends, He has spoken to us. And this is what he said. Hebrews chapter 2, beginning in verse 10. For it was fitting that He, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For He who sanctifies, and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why He's not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. You will pray with me. Father, as we just sang, as we try to reconcile and, and understand the cross, we, we can't answer the question of truly why we should gain from Christ's reward. But Lord, what we do know, what, what we clearly see in Your Word is that Christ indeed has paid our ransom. He is the perfect sacrifice. He is the great high priest. He is the only one through whom we might come into Your presence one day. So, Lord, we pray as we look to your word today, that we would have a better understanding of who Jesus is and of what he's called us to do. Help us to repent and to have faith today, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. may be seated. I want you to imagine a scenario with me this morning. This will require many of us to look back, perhaps some to look ahead. I imagine that you are in your 20s, you're not a Christian, you weren't raised in the church, you've never heard the gospel before. Uh, Up until this point in your life, you've had a, a rather frustrating experience, you've moved from job to job and relationship to relationship, and you are now at a point in your young life where you've started to get rather depressed and wondered about the meaning of it all. It's about that time that a friend invites you to go to church and you go with them and you hear for the first time with clarity the gospel of Jesus Christ and you surrender your life to the gospel. You turn and repent and you place your faith in Christ and and everything in your life begins to change. You, You find joy in this relationship with Christ. You find a new family in this church family you're involved in. Uh, You fall in love and are married, you have a child and then another, you you find a job that you love and enjoy, and, and you sit back and look at your life and begin to see what you feel is just the blessing of God on your life. Everything seems to be going so well and so smoothly. And then one day the phone rings. You pick up the phone and it's your spouse. They're calling from the emergency room where they're there with your six-year-old son who collapsed in the yard while playing with his baby sister. He was unresponsive. The emergency workers were able to, to bring him to the hospital to give him treatment. He's now regained consciousness, but they are fearful. The doctors think there may be something going on in his brain, and so they have taken him in now for a scan. You arrive at the hospital just in time to meet with the doctor as they meet with you and your spouse and explain that your six-year-old boy has a, a very large, massive tumor on his brain. It looks to be a very rare form of cancer that is extremely problematic. The prognosis is not good at all. And so as a Christian, you begin to pray. You ask others to pray. You you put things out in the prayer chain in your church and other churches soon. You're receiving phone calls and emails and letters and notes and visits. All from people telling you that they're praying for your child, giving well-meaning advice, sending you verses and Scripture and cards and books. One friend comes by to visit and as they leave they say, I know this is going to work out. God never gives us more than we can handle. Another sends you a card and says they're praying and they're encouraging you to pray in faith that that God will bring healing to your child. Another sends you a book by a very popular pastor that you've seen on TV before, you've never listened to them much, but you begin to read this book and this pastor talks to you about having victory in Jesus and victory over sickness and, and victory over so many things. The pastor writes this, if faith can move mountains, surely it can get rid of sickness and bring us material blessing. And so you pray. You pray more than you've ever prayed before. You read your Bible. You go to church. You give to missions and missionaries and every ministry you can find to support. You you continue to look for ways to exercise this faith and and show this faith. Another friend gives you a book and in this book it talks about how God calls us to situations of suffering in order to, to test us and, and talks about Abraham being, being tested and, and how you begin to reconcile these things is that perhaps this is just one big test from the Lord to, to see if you have enough faith. And as you seek to exercise this faith, as you hear people say over and over again that God will never give us more than we can handle and that if we have enough faith, God will bring healing You begin to get frustrated. Six months go by. Everything's not okay. God has seemingly given you much more than you can handle. You have prayed in faith and God has not healed your child. And so you push back through all these cards and all these notes and you begin to sink yourself in the Word of God and they are in that hospital room with your child as they endure another series of treatments. You come to 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and you read these words beginning in verse 16 where Paul does not say God never gives us more than we can handle. Rather, he says this in the midst of His suffering. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And you begin to just meditate on this passage, and over and over again you read, this this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. My prayer is that you will not experience this scenario But sadly, many of you experienced one similar to this. Children get cancer. People we love die, it seems, very untimely deaths. Sickness and suffering and tragedy befall us. And and we, as followers of Christ, we, we are not exempt from these things. In fact, as we've talked about before, it seems that suffering is so disproportional in the Christian life for some that there is so much that weighs on us. God certainly gives us more than we can handle because He doesn't intend us to handle these things apart from Him. And it's in these times and it's in preparation for these times that That we need to sink ourselves into the Word of God, that we need to push back beyond all the the bumper sticker, cultural Christian advice, and really truly seek to understand. What does God's word teach us about suffering in the life of the believer? And to dig deep into passages like the one that we've read today. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 10 through 13, where the writer of Hebrews now is, is unpacking for us how it is that this salvation has been founded by Jesus Christ and what that should mean to us in our day-to-day life. And especially, I believe, this is a passage we should consider, not just when we are suffering, but in preparation for suffering that will one day come for us. And so let's dig in today. And by God's grace, let's learn a few things about what it means to trust God in the midst of our suffering. Beginning with the first point there in your outline, we see here in verse 10 that God uses suffering to prepare us for His glory. God uses suffering to prepare us for His glory. Suffering is not without meaning. There is purpose and there is meaning here, and we see that in this passage. Verse 10 again, the writer says, For it was fitting that, that He... The first question should be then, who is the he here? The writer's already talked to us about God the Father and about Jesus and, and the triune God. And so we see he. It's important to understand here what he's talking about. I believe he's referencing God the Father as he says he here in verse 10. And what does he say about him? He says, for whom and by whom all things exist. So so all things exist through him. God is the creator God who has created all things. And he says all these things exist through for him. But what does that mean? And When we think about possession and ownership, we think about benefiting from something. So, so is the writer here saying that, well, well, God owns all the apple trees so God can have all the apples? I don't think that's what he's saying. I think what he's saying is that all these things are in creation and they exist because of God and and they exist for the explicit purpose of bringing glory to God. That's the consistent theme we see throughout the Scripture. That's what Paul writes in Romans 11, verse 36. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things, to Him be glory forever. And so all these things that God has created, He has created for glory. And then notice what he says, that, that this God who's created all things, whom all things exist for His glory. It says He is bringing many sons to glory. That, that word sons there, that's sons and daughters. That, that's His children, that's the people of God. It says He's bringing us to glory. What, what does that mean? When we think of God's glory, we think of His, his majesty, his, his awesomeness, His set-apartness, His His holiness. So what does it mean that He's bringing us to glory? It means that He is is bringing us to that point where we can enter into the presence of a holy God. He he is bringing us to that point where one day He will glorify us, where we will be in a sinless, perfect condition. We're not there yet. and We're not going to be there this side of eternity. We, We are being sanctified. We're being made more and more like Jesus, but there's that day when we'll be in glory with Christ. And that's the day that the writer of Hebrews has been pointing us towards. If you remember from, from last week in verse 5 there, he talked about this, this world that is to come. We're being prepared for this world to come. And he says here that he'll bring us into that, that he'll bring many sons to glory. Literally, that means he, he is leading us there. He, he is marching before us, leading the way. And he does this through this process of Sanctification being made more and more like Jesus in our day-to-day lives. And he'll get to that in verse 11. But for now, notice what he says in verse 10. It is fitting then that this God should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Now here he is speaking of Jesus and he's speaking about suffering. Now notice that the argument here. He says God is the Creator. All things exist for his glory. He's going to bring us into that glory. And how's he going to do that? He's going to do that through Jesus, who he perfected. Through what? Through suffering. Now the first question there for us then will be, well, what does it mean that Jesus was perfected? I mean, to be perfected would imply imperfection. And is he saying that somehow Jesus had sinned, that he was imperfect? That's not what he's saying. But I think he's talking about something entirely different here. R.C. Sproul said it better than I can, so let me just read his words. He said, this does not mean that, that Jesus finally became sinless since he was without sin. That's what we'll get to in Hebrews 4.15, he who was without sin. That doesn't mean that Jesus finally became sinless since he was without sin, but that he finished the course of suffering that was set before him, including his sacrificial death. And having done this, he was made sin. Perfect or completely qualified to serve as the uniquely effective high priest, and so this is what this means: is that that, that God ordained a plan for Jesus that was going to lead him through suffering to the cross, and He used Jesus, who was perfectly obedient, who who was the perfect Son, truly God, truly man. He used Jesus to go through the suffering to bring him to this point where he could be our perfect sacrifice on the cross. So how does that relate to us? Well, just consider this for a moment. God's plan for Jesus, His Son, who was without sin, who was perfectly obedient, who had perfect faith in God, His plan for His Son, His perfect Son, involved suffering. What what makes us somehow think that His plan for us would not involve that? Or or better yet, how, how do we get to this place that so many get to where they say, well, if we just have enough faith, then we won't suffer, when we see this picture of Christ who had perfect faith. And yet He suffered. I think what the writer of Hebrews here is doing is, is laying out for us is that we can take comfort in our suffering because Jesus suffered. And not only did He suffer, He, he suffered in a way that should bring us great comfort because He, he knows our pain. He, he knows our suffering. You might think of it this way. Some of you have, have gone through immeasurable suffering in your life. You've, you've gone through hard things. Not not talking about the petty little stuff, well, you know, my back's aching, cars not, no, just you've experienced loss and, and devastation. And in the midst of that, there are probably people who have tried to comfort you. And there are some who have better than others. And it's not that they're not well-meaning in seeking to comfort you, but there's there's times when you've gone through such an intense experience that the only people that can comfort you are the people who've gone through that experience. You've lost your mother. It comforts you when another who's lost their mother seeks to bring you comfort. You've experienced an intense situation that, that only people who've experienced that can fully understand. And so people try to comfort you, but there's, there's part of you that says, they, they, they don't understand what I'm going through. They, they can't understand what I'm going through. And then someone comes along who, who can understand. They, they can empathize. They've been in that situation that you are now in. And then you start to have a little bit of hope because you meet somebody who's been through it and they've survived it. And maybe now you can survive this as well. That there's a unique comfort that comes from someone who can fully empathize with you. And what the scripture teaches us about Jesus is this. Jesus is uniquely equipped to comfort us in anything that we might encounter. He fully understands. He fully understands what it is that we are experiencing. We can't say that about our position towards Jesus. We we don't know what it was for Jesus to go through what He went through. We, We haven't experienced the suffering He went through, but He understands ours. And because He understands ours, because He has suffered, then we can begin to receive comfort from Christ primarily because He is the one who better than anyone else understands that which we have endured or will endure. And we can take comfort. Now hear me, this, this doesn't mean that it all makes sense. I, I don't have the, the perfect preacher formula to offer you this morning where, where when you suffer, when you consider your suffering, you can go, oh, okay, oh yeah, that, 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 this pastor made it, it makes sense now. No, there's, there's things that don't make sense. I can't reconcile why some children are born with genetic abnormalities, and some are not. I can't reconcile why some people don't see their 20th birthdays, and others do. I can't, I can't reconcile why six-year-olds get Cancer, and other six-year-olds don't. I I, I can't reconcile fully all these things. I I can doctrinally, theologically look at them and explain sin and a fallen world and the devastation of a fallen world, but when we start getting personal and start getting in our lives with these things, I, I can't give you this little formula that just makes perfect sense of all of it. But I can wholeheartedly say to you that Jesus understands. And that Jesus can bring you comfort. That no one else can. And that what the writer of Hebrews is unfolding for us is that this suffering that we endure or will endure, that it's not meaningless, it's not void, it's not without meaning, it's not random chance, that in the midst of our pain, God has a plan for us. And God indeed will minister to us. And the writer of Hebrews here says He will minister to us primarily chiefly through His Son, Jesus Christ. And that is why Paul can write in 2 Corinthians so we do not lose heart. Because if we don't have Jesus, we have no hope. If we don't have Jesus, then the verse is, lose heart. But but we have Christ. So we can say, We do not lose heart. Why? Because though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. So the whole world can be falling apart around us, and we can have hope within us. Why? Because of Jesus. For this light momentary affliction. I don't think Paul's there saying, well, it's really not that big a deal. He's saying it's light and momentary in comparison to what? This light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. We we can't even fathom what is to come. That that doesn't make light of our suffering. That that doesn't minimize our devastation. But, But the Scripture says, okay, take your eyes up for a moment and set them on Christ and set them on glory and compare the weight of an eternal glory with what will one day seem to us a momentary light affliction. He says we're not to look at things which are seen, but to things that are unseen. The things that are unseen are transient. They, they are temporal. They, they are passing. But the things that are seen are eternal. So, so what's coming together, I believe, here in Hebrews chapter 2 is this, this understanding, this theology of suffering and how God in the midst of that which we would never ask for. He can and will use these things for His glory. So how does He do that? Point two, God prepares us for glory through Jesus. He prepares us for glory through Jesus, our perfect elder brother. Verse 11, for, for He... Now again, who is the He here? Now I think he's, he's shifted. He's not speaking of the Father. now. Now He that He's referring to is Jesus. Now He, Jesus, who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source that that source is god the father and that is why he jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers so this picture we have here is that that jesus is the 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 perfect elder brother who who leads the way who, who we can trust in who is preparing us for glory he's our older brother that that's the the language of scripture we are we are brought into the family of God. God is our Father. Jesus is our elder brother. And this is something at times that can bring great confusion, especially to children as they're coming to understand the Gospel. I've had this conversation with, with my kids, with many of your kids, as I've talked to them about the Gospel and as they get to that point of repentance and faith, and I'll, I'll say to them, for my children, now not only am I your father, I'm your brother. All right, <laughs> like, what? And then it gets real confusing when I tell them that their mother is my sister in the faith. <laughs> but, but that's the body of Christ. We, we are brothers and sisters in Christ. That's why when we baptize, I baptize you my brother, I baptize you my, my sister, we're, we're brought into this family and what we see in this family is that Jesus is the perfect elder brother in this family and we can trust Him. It says here that He's the one who sanctifies us and that we're being sanctified. God is using Jesus and the Holy Spirit to, to sanctify us. Again, that's being more and more made into the image of Jesus. So you might think of it this way. In, in some of your relationships growing up, some of you had an older sibling, and, and they were a good brother, a good sister, and you wanted to be like them. Maybe still you want to be like them. And so the things they did, you would do, especially maybe when you were younger, you'd just kind of follow in their footsteps. They'd play football, so you play football. They'd play soccer, you play soccer. They'd get involved in this activity or that activity, and you'd do it. Why? Well, you wanted to be like your older brother, your older sister. And for others of you, that wasn't the case at all. You had a very dysfunctional, perhaps still have a dysfunctional family. You, you didn't want to be like your older brother or your older sister. Sin had distorted that relationship, that, that person. And, and so when you hear this talk of, of being like your elder brother Jesus, well, that's kind of tainted by your reflection on your own sibling relationships. And again, you, you should have comfort there because the Scripture is filled with dysfunctional family relationships, especially as it relates to siblings and this, this older sibling, this older brother. I mean, think of what we see from the, the first two siblings mentioned in the scripture. Cain, the older brother. He didn't exactly look out for his younger brother, did he? No, he was jealous of him. He, he was angered by him. And he killed his younger brother, Abel. You continue to see that, that pattern throughout the Scripture. We come to places like Joseph's story, and we find here Joseph is not cared for, is not protected by his older brothers. No, rather they, they, they take him and they... They throw him into the pit and they sell him as a slave. You think about what Jesus says about the the parable of the prodigal son. Again, you've got this younger brother who rebels against his family, demands his inheritance, essentially says to his father, I'd rather you be dead so I can have my inheritance now. He gives him the money. He goes off to a far land. he, He squanders it on wickedness. And what's the older brother do? He doesn't go chasing after him. He doesn't try to go rescue him. In fact, when the younger brother comes home repentant and the father embraces him and throws a feast for him, think about how the older brother responds to that. He is bitter and he is jealous. And so we have this picture throughout the Scripture of these distorted relationships, these older brothers who are not what God intended them to be. And then we have this picture of Jesus, who's the perfect elder brother. When we see Cain take the life of his brother Abel, and yet what does Jesus do? He gives his life for his brothers and his sisters. When we see Joseph's brothers throw him into the pit and leave him there to die, what does Jesus do? Jesus gets down in the pit in our life and he rescues us from it. When we see that older brother of the prodigal just bitter and jealous, he doesn't go after him. And what does Jesus do? In our wickedness, in our sin, Jesus goes after us. Jesus comes after us, and Jesus rescues us. And so we see this picture in the Scripture that that Jesus is the perfect elder brother. He's the one we should want to be like. He's the one we should emulate. He's the one that we should follow after. And and friends, that's what the Christian life is. It's becoming more and more like Jesus in our day-to-day lives. And so we think about passages like Galatians 5, 20-23, which tell us about the, the fruit of the Spirit. That this fruit of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And, and the point of that passage is not, okay, just go out there and try to be more loving. Go out there and try to be more faithful go out there and try in your flesh to do these things no it's to set our eyes on the one who was perfectly loving perfectly joyful perfectly faithful who is jesus christ and to seek to be like jesus as he has given us a new heart and a new life through which we can walk in his steps and we can follow him so what it means to follow jesus he, he is the perfect elder brother so that's the call that we have here Jesus is the one who has gone before us and, and Jesus is the one who enables us to endure the suffering and hardships of life because Jesus suffered and Jesus understands and we can put our hope and our faith and our trust in Him. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is building up to here. And now he goes where he's gone before. He, he goes back to the Old Testament. He helps us to put these things together to see how all the things in the Scripture point to Jesus, which brings us to that third point there in your outline. Number three. Jesus is the one that leads us to trust in God and to live for God's glory. And Jesus is the one that leads us to trust in God and to live for God's glory. Look at verse 12 there. He says all these things about Jesus, and then he comes to verse 12, and it says, saying. Well, who's saying? Well, the implication here is that Jesus is saying. So he said all these things about Jesus, and he's like, "All right, remember what Jesus said." But then he goes to Psalm 22, and he goes to Isaiah 8. And if you know about Psalm 22 and Isaiah 8, you can probably infer. Well, wait a second. Psalm 22 was that was King David writing that, and you don't have to be a biblical scholar to figure out Isaiah 8 was written by Isaiah. <laughs> and so he he says, though, here no, these are what these are things Jesus said. Again, he's, he's putting together for us this biblical theology, this understanding that in order to understand the Old Testament, we, we read it through the lens of the New Testament, and we, we see how all these things point us to Jesus, and we see how they these things are understood in light of Jesus. Now, Jesus is the Word, and so this, this is the Word of Jesus through David and through Isaiah, and this is the Word pointing to Jesus through David and Isaiah. And so he starts there with Psalm 22 verse 12 of Hebrews 2, he quotes from Psalm 22 and says, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. I believe that the the, the believers at this point, when they heard Psalm 22, they they immediately thought of Jesus saying these words, because Psalm 22 is what Jesus quotes on the cross. The very first verse of Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's what Jesus says what he quotes on the cross, he's quoting the scripture, he he's crying these things out to God, these words that were written by King David long before, and now we see how they come to their fullness and fruition through Jesus who cries this out to God. And and many times believers just kind of casually pass by that and think, Wow, how would Jesus think that God had forsaken him? Well you, you go back to the Psalm to understand the fullness of what's taking place there. And you see how it directly points towards the cross. Psalm 22, verses 6 through 8, record that that experience, what Christ would endure on the cross being mocked by the crowd. Verses 14 through 15 describe in detail the agonies of what Jesus would experience on the cross. I'm poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It's melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me into the dust of death. And then finally there in verses 16-18 through of Psalm 22, he gives explicit details of what happens on the cross. The company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing they cast lots. But then as you read the Psalm, you get to verse 22 and you find there... What David's writing about in verse 22 is this, this is past the crucifixion and the resurrection. Now, Jesus is glorified. He, he's in the presence of God and the presence of the assembly of the brothers and sisters of the faith and He's praising God with them. He writes, I'll tell of your name, tell of your name, God, to my brothers, these brethren, in the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. That This is the verse that's being quoted here in Hebrews 2. Why? Again, connect the dots here. That the writer of Hebrews says that, that, that God is bringing us to glory. He points us towards Jesus and helps us to see how on that path to glory, how Jesus suffered, that we might understand that, that we too will suffer on the path of glory. But where is He calling our attention to now? He, he's calling it off of our suffering to look ahead towards that day of glory when Jesus... Get this, Jesus is leading us in worship before God the Father. I mean, just try for a second to comprehend that. We're not going to be looking at a screen trying to figure out if we're singing the right words or not. We're not going to be flipping through the hymnal. We we certainly aren't going to be standing there saying, well, I really like that last song better than this one. I wish this one was up more upbeat. or I wish this one was slower. How come we don't sing this more? No, we're in the assembly of the saints. We're with the brothers and sisters in the faith. Where We are surrounded by every tribe and nation and tongue, and we are praising God the Father, and Jesus Christ, our elder brother, is leading us in worship to the glory of the Father. And as the writer of Hebrews is calling our attention to this, specifically through Psalm 22, which starts with, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But gets us to this point of one day being in the presence of God. I can't help but think perhaps the writer of Hebrews is wanting us here and now to to lift our eyes up off of our situation and our circumstances and just get a glimpse of what is to come. And when we're in the hospital room or the funeral home, Just for for a second to take our our eyes off of that and just look at what is to come. And perhaps as we do that, we begin to see how, how this is a light momentary affliction. Preparing us for an eternal weight of glory. And we begin to understand what it means to take our eyes off of what is seen and put them on what is unseen. He continues to quote the Old Testament there in verse 13. He goes to Isaiah 8. You may not know much about Isaiah 8. You have likely heard often Isaiah 7 and Isaiah 9. That this whole section of Isaiah is just a, a treasure of messianic hope. It, it points us towards Christ. That's why these passages, Isaiah 7 and 9, they're quoted so often in reference to the Incarnation. They're probably on Christmas cards that you got this last year. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, Therefore the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and His name shall be called Emmanuel. That hope of what is to come for the people in Isaiah's day. Isaiah 9, verse 6, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon His shoulders, and His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And in the midst of pointing people towards this this hope that was coming in the Messiah, we have Isaiah 8. Again, where we can infer now, these are the words of Christ saying, I will trust in him, I'll trust in God. And behold, I and the children that God has given me, these these brethren, these sheep who've come together. Again, why is the writer calling us back there? Well, I think he's showing us real clearly. Look at these promises God made in Isaiah. And look how they've come to fruition. And realize that our God that we serve is a God who keeps His word. I don't keep my word all the time. I'll make little casual promises all the time that I don't keep. Sure, we'll get ice cream tonight. We didn't get ice cream, <laughs> that there's probably times you've said things that haven't come true. Maybe there's people in your life who have made promises to you over and over again, and those things didn't come to fruition. And what happens? Then you begin to lose trust in that person. And then we come to God's Word, and we find that every time God makes a promise, it always comes true. Here's the catch. Too often we hinge our hope on that which God has not promised us. And we totally lose sight of what He has promised. We, we can't fully reconcile, explain, understand all these things that we might suffer, but what we do understand is there's a day coming that He promises when there's no more suffering and no more death and no more tears and no more cancers and no more, no more, no more, no more of any of it. And He calls us to put our hope in Him. So how do we do that? We trust in Jesus. We follow Jesus. By the grace of God, we seek to be like Jesus. And as we do this, we find God preparing us for an eternal weight of a glory that's beyond all comparison. We we take our eyes off of that which is seen. We stop looking for the easiest, quickest way to dull and numb our pain the escape door to get us out of the suffering we're in. And we take a moment to consider, God, what is the meaning here? And how can I better trust in You? And we set our focus on Christ, who God has appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of the nature. And He upholds the universe by the Word of His power. Friend, if He upholds the universe by the Word of His power, we can trust Him to uphold us in the same way. So let's trust Him today. If you would stand and pray with me as we seek to look to Jesus, to trust in Him, and to live for the glory of God. Father, we thank You for Your Word. But Lord, I am mindful that it's very easy for us to, to hear Your Word, to read Your Word, and then have little to no application from it. We need the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives to conform us, to, to truly empower us to repentance and faith. We, we, we need You to work in such a way that we take our eyes off of what is seen, that we seek to place it on what is unseen. We, we need You to do this work in our life so that our, our first response to pain and, and suffering is to, to look to Jesus. That, that takes a work of the Spirit. And so, Lord, I pray that you would do that work. I, I pray today, Lord, that you would give comfort to us. Lord, for those who are suffering, who have suffered, who continue to wrestle with seeking to understand why, why such devastation has come. Lord, I pray you would give them a, glo- a glimpse of the glory that is to come of the hope that we can have in you for others, Lord, who perhaps haven't, haven't faced devastation and suffering. They've, they've seen it in others' lives, but it's not hit home yet. Lord, would you remind them today that Christians aren't exempt from this? Would you prepare them and help them to, to dig deep and grow roots now so that when the storm comes, they're, they're responsible to be to trust in you? And would you help us each to trust in you, to look to Jesus today? We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.